Mark chapter 14, verse 27. Then Jesus said to them, All of you will run away because it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have been resurrected, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Peter told him, Even if everyone runs away, I certainly will, I certainly, I will certainly not. I assure you, Jesus said to him, to this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he kept insisting, if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. And they all said the same thing. I want you to imagine for a minute the scene and what's going on here. Just uh, maybe a few hours earlier, they just they all just finished having a Passover meal. They all just finished um, meeting together, enjoying this historic occasion. Um, they were all eating together, talking together. By this time, Judas had already left, had, had decided in his mind, in his heart, to betray Jesus. Jesus pointed it out that someone was going to betray him. Um, he took off. And so Jesus, after this meal, after they sung some hymns, after they sung some worship songs, they decide to make their way up to the Mount of Olives. Again, I want you to think about what it would have been like as they're making their way up the mountain. Now, we know from what we've already covered that the Mount of Olives was a common place for them. They have already, they, it wasn't unknown to them. Jesus had been there. They had, Jesus and his disciples had been there often. And Jesus had taught from there. You know, they had learned a lot from Jesus on that mount. So as they're making their way up the mountain, they probably were thinking in their minds and in their, they probably were thinking, hey, Jesus is just going to give us another post-Passover teaching. So while the disciples were preoccupied, maybe with other things um, in their minds, they were mentally thinking of other things. Jesus' heart and mind was elsewhere. You see, he understood what was going to happen to him. He knew what was going to happen to them. And he's, he's making his way up that mountain. Every step that he takes is just gets heavier and heavier. He's maintaining his composure. But he knows he's just one step closer to the inevitable. And again, he's thinking about them. He's thinking about um, God's plan. And he, you can just imagine how hard that walk is for him. Then suddenly Jesus breaks his pensive silence, saying, all of you will run away, and then backs up what he's saying with scripture. He says, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will, get, will be scattered. And he gets that from Zechariah 13.7. Upon hearing that, the disciples are like, what, what do you mean? What are you, what are you talking about? Jesus once again is telling, telling them with scripture that he will be killed. And when that happens, like sheep, they will all be scattered. They will all scatter. 
And again, although they may not have understood it at the time, he gives them a word of instruction right afterwards. He tells them, after I have been resurrected, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Then Peter, who we know just has a tendency to just blurt things out without even thinking about it. You know, he thinks without, you know, he says things without thinking about it. How, I mean, I'm sure all of us have made that mistake. I know that I'm guilty of, of doing that very often, just speaking out of the top of my head. I've learned to be more careful, but um, Peter just had a strong tendency to do this. And here again, he speaks up and says, um, even if I, even if everyone runs away, I certainly will not. So upon hearing Peter's boastful statement, Jesus informed him that on this very night, he will deny knowing Jesus three times before the rooster crows twice. Yet even after saying this, yet even after Jesus had said this to him, to his face, Peter still adamantly insisted that even if he were to face death, he'd never deny Jesus. Now, as Peter said that, we're told that the rest of the disciples agreed they'd do the same thing. They all agreed with Peter, and they said, yeah, we're, we're never going to deny you. We're all going to follow you. And we'll see in just a minute again that all that is going to change. So Jesus, again, knew at the time that time had come and that it wouldn't be long before he'd be betrayed, arrested, tried, beaten, crucified, and killed. Knowing what he was about to endure physically and spiritually, each step he took towards the Mountain of Olives must have gotten heavier and heavier. But despite the heavy-heartedness Jesus felt, he shows us through verses 27 to 31 how to spiritually prepare for the trials and difficulties that lay ahead. Now, firstly, what he shows us is that we must stay focused on God's word. While the disciples were clueless as they're walking up that mountain, thinking about other things, and they had no idea they were clueless about what was about to transpire. transpire. Yet Jesus' thoughts were on the word of God. He believed, he trusted, and lived by every word found in Scripture. He received his strength, his wisdom, guidance, and comfort through them. So if you want to spiritually prepare yourself, for the storm that you see at a distance, you too must stay focused on God's word. Words like the ones found in Isaiah 41.10, where God says, Do not fear, I am with you. Do not be afraid, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will, I will hold on to you with my righteous right hand. And then King David also wrote in Psalm 23, 4, and you guys may be familiar with this, but King David wrote, Even though I walk through the valley of, sh of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. 
focus on God's word. The next thing you can do to spiritually prepare for hardships, for the hardships of trials, is remain hopeful and optimistic. In verse 28, in verse 28, we see Jesus already looking beyond the cross. He knew the storm would pass, and he never lost hope. So when you see difficulties and trials ahead, don't lose hope. Look beyond them. It says in Peter, in 1 Peter 5:10, now the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ Jesus, will personally restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you've suffered a little. There's sunshine. There's calm after the storm. It's gonna be rough. It's going to be tough, but have hope. It's not going to be the end. It's not going to be the end of the world. He has you. He sustains you. He strengthens you. He will keep you. Continue to have hope. Thirdly, we can we can spiritually prepare for the hardships of trials by relying and depending on God's strength to sustain you. Peter was unaware of both the spiritual reality and the spiritual battle that Jesus clearly saw. Peter only looked at how he felt at the moment and relied on his own strength rather than relying on God to give him that strength. When you see the storms, the storm clouds gathering ahead, don't make the mistake of overestimating your strength to get you through it. Seek God for strength. One of my favorite verses from all time, I mean, that I me- the first one of the first verses I ever memorized, besides John three sixteen, was Psalm eighteen two. There it says, "The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer, my God, my mountain where I seek refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold." Whenever I've ever been down in the pits. That's what I think about. That's what I focus on. Lord, you are my strength. You are my salvation. You are my mountain where I seek refuge. You're my shield. Okay, so now that, now uh, let's look at what happened in the garden when they arrived. So we're going to pick up in verse 32. Mark 14, verse 32. Then they came to a place named Gethsemane. And he told his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John with him. And he began to be deeply distressed and horrified. Then he said to them, my soul is swallowed up in sorrow to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake. Then he went a little further, fell on the ground, and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Then he came and found him sleeping. Simon, are you sleeping? He asked Peter, couldn't you stay awake one hour? Stay awake and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once again, he went away and prayed, saying the same thing. 
and he came again and found them sleeping because they could not keep their eyes open. They did not know what to say to him. Then he came a third time and he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The time has come. Look, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let's go. See, my betrayer is near. Once they get into the Garden of Gethsemane, he gets there with his 11 disciples. And he tells a group of eight, hey, you guys just sit here. Sit here while I go pray. Then he takes Peter, James, and John and tells them, you guys, come with me. So as they're following him, as, he's, as the first eight are just there, they're sitting there, they're praying, or they're just you know, keeping him company, he walks a little further with Peter, James, and John. And we see in verse 33 where Jesus says, tells them, he began to be, well, we see first that he began to feel deeply distressed and horrified. He felt this way not because of the physical torture that he was about to endure, but because of the spiritual horror that would happen to him on the cross, that would happen on the cross. He began to feel the emotional distress of being separated from his father for the first time in his life when all the sins of the world would be placed upon him. He always was connected with God. He was always connected with his father. So the thought of just not knowing what it was like to have that connection, to have that intimacy with him, just completely horrified him. So upon informing Peter, James, and John of the spiritual agony he was going through in verse 34, he also tells them, you three just remain here and just stay awake. Notice that Jesus didn't ask them to pray for him at that particular moment. All he wanted was for them to be with him, to stay awake, to just keep him company. That's all he was asking from them. When he went off by himself a little further, Mark tells us in verse 35 what the general prayer of Jesus was about, what Jesus' prayer was about. It's in the following verse that, that Mark tells us what Jesus was specifically crying out to his father for in prayer. He says, Abba, Father, with all things, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Now, some of the other Gospels are more descriptive. They get more into the prayer, what's happening there, what's going on here. I may speak about those other Gospels in, in, in just a minute, or I, I, but I want to focus on what is being said here, what, it, what Mark is telling us. But he's crying out to God. It tells us here that he fell on his face and was just crying out to God. I almost, I like this picture because I just, I imagine that this is kind of like what he was 
going through, what, how he was crying out to God. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. As he was on the ground, Jesus cried out in Aramaic, Abba, which would be the English equivalent of saying, Daddy. So he's there on the ground, just crying out, Daddy, Daddy. It was an endearing term. In Aramaic, it was just an, uh, an endearing term. And he's just crying out to his dad. And what that tells us that even in this moment of deep distress, he never felt far from, from God the Father. Now Jesus understood that God was in control of this entire situation and that anything, or I mean nothing, was impossible for him. He accepted that fact and he submitted himself to it. However, the agony, the thought of being spiritually separated from God became so unbearable that he cried out to God that if there were were any other way to not endure the fury of his wrath, he would accept it. And I guess you can look at it this way too. He He was also asking the Father if there were any other possible way to save humanity other than the agony of the cross, let it be. He was crying out, Lord, if if there's any other way, I I understand, I I get it, it's it's fine. I I just don't want to feel the separation. I don't want to feel the wrath of your fury. Then right afterwards, Jesus says, nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Jesus was letting his father know that despite of the way he felt, he was going to submit to the will and plans of God. I believe that just as much as it pained God to see his son suffer, he knew there was no other alternative. Had there been another alternative, I'm sure that he would have been like, okay, yeah, there is another way, Jesus. I just realized there's another, um, I, I didn't think about it before. And so, yeah, there's another plan to, to save humanity. But, gee, but God, there was no other way. Jesus understood it. God understood it. But yet, it was still the cry of his heart, Lord, if there is no other way. If there is another way, I, I accept it. And I imagine God just, son, I'm sorry. Son, I love you, but there is no other way. Through you, the sins of the world will, is, it will be forgiven. My sins, your sins will be forgiven. There was no other way. That night also, Jesus came to a point of decision. In the garden, 
he knew that he came to a point that he knew would eventually come. You see, although he already decided beforehand, he knew what his mission was, he knew what his calling was, he knew what he was on the earth, on this earth to do. He knew that he would give up his life for the sins that were in the world, but in the garden, at that moment, was when he ultimately decided to do it. Had he failed there, had he failed at that moment, at that point, he would have failed at the cross. Now, in the meantime, while this was going on with Jesus, as Jesus was pouring out his heart out to God, the disciples got complacent and fell asleep. On the first encounter with, you know, on, his, on Jesus' first encounter with Peter, Peter, James, and John, you can hear the disappointment in his words, Simon, are you still sleeping? Couldn't you stay awake one hour? Jesus knew that Peter would fail, but, his but was encouraging him to stay awake and alert by watching and praying. Doing so would have drew him closer to a dependence on God and may have kept him from denying Jesus later on. Then we see Jesus going back to pray some more. He goes back a second time, he sees him sleeping again, and they were in such a deep sleep, they couldn't even think of anything to say. Finally, on the third encounter, he says, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The time has come. Look, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let's go. See, my betrayer is near. Three separate times Jesus prayed, and three times Jesus found the disciples sleeping instead of praying for strength for the coming trial. He wanted the disciples to help him and stand in prayer, not for his own sake, but for their own benefit. He had prayed the hour might pass, but the time had come. He was about to be betrayed into the hands of sinners. The betrayer was outside the garden and, would, and they would meet momentarily. Now, while verses 27 to 31 show us how to spiritually prepare for the trials and difficulties that lay ahead, Verses 32 to 42 show us some methods to help alleviate the emotional pain and agony we may go through during those trials and hardships. The first thing we must do is surround ourselves with brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus didn't go up the mountain by himself. He didn't say, hey, you guys stay, up, stay here in the, in, the, in the upper room and continue eating. I'm just feeling bummed out or I'm feeling these emotions. I'm just going to go by myself and, and um, figure this out. He surrounded himself with the people that cared about him, the people he loved and the people that cared about him. He needed their company in his most difficult time. When you're struggling spiritually, surround yourself with people who will spiritually encourage you and uplift you. Don't go, at, don't go at it alone. You're not supposed to go at it alone. That's why we have, you know, you, you have, I'm sure, friends you can call, spiritual brothers and sisters that you know that can just know, have been there before for you, have encouraged you before. Seek them out. It says in Ecclesiastes 4, 9 and 10, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their efforts. For if either falls, his companion can lift him up. But pity the one who falls without another to lift him up. 
The second thing we must do is to let those closest to us know what we're going through. And it's, it relates to the first one. We see in verse 34, Jesus opening his heart to Peter, James, and John by informing them of what he was feeling. My soul, he tells them, is swallowed up in sorrow to the point of death. He expressed to them, he was, guys, this is what I'm feeling. And so we must do the same thing. During those times you feel yourself, you, you find yourself feeling what Jesus felt, let somebody know. Don't make the false assumption that people don't care because the truth is some of us do. Some of us do care. Find a brother and sister in Christ to open up to. As Christians, that's what we're called to do. Galatians 6.2 says, carry one another's burdens. In this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. The third thing we have to do is to be honest when crying out to God. Now, I want to be clear. When you're crying out to God, when I tell you cry out to God or, or be honest, I'm not saying what other, maybe other pastors or other teachers have said and just go ahead and come to him honest, honestly and you can be angry with him, you can cuss and you can, I'm not saying that at all. Because I, I can't think of a single example in the Bible where someone cried out to God in this way and just in a very, you know what God, you've done this and I'm angry with you and, you, and, 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 and cussing and raising their, no, I've never, can't think of an example. But what I have noticed is people always approaching God with reverence, respect, humbleness, and with honesty. So when you come to him in this way, I absolutely believe he hears you. Psalm 34, 17, Psalm 34, verses 17 and 18 say, The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears, and delivers them from their troubles. The Lord is near the brokenhearted. He saves those crushed in spirit. The fourth thing we can do to alleviate the emotional pain and agony during trials is submit to the will of God. The sooner you realize that fact, the easier it becomes to accept whatever situation you're in as God's divine plan for you. He has a reason and purpose for everything happening in your life. That you ha everything happening in your life that you have no control over. Suffering through that, again, you may not understand it, you may not know why, but it's ultimately for your benefit. It's for your benefit and for His glory. It says in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean in your own, on your own understanding. Think about Him in all your ways and He will guide you in the right paths. I think we have enough time to, to look at the last section um, of our passage this morning. So let's pick up in verse 43. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, suddenly arrived with him. With, suddenly arrived. With him was a mob, with swords, clubs, from the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. His betrayer had given them a signal. The one I kiss, he said. He's the one. Arrest him and take him away under guard. So when he came, he went right up to him and said, Rabbi, and kissed him. Then they took 
hold of him, arrested him and arrested him. And one of those who stood by stood by, drew his sword, struck the high priest's slave, and cut cut off his ear. But Jesus said to them, Have you come out with swords and clubs as though I were a criminal to capture me? Every day I was among you, teaching in the temple complex, and you didn't arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then they all deserted him and ran away. Now a certain young man, having a linen cloth wrapped around his naked body, was following him. They caught hold of him, but he left the linen cloth behind, and he ran away naked. Now Jesus wasn't done speaking when suddenly Judas Iscariot arrives with a large crowd armed with swords and clubs. Now it appears this crowd may have consisted of Roman soldiers who were the only ones allowed to carry swords and the henchmen for the chief priests, scribes, and elders. Now according to John's account, it was about 600 men there. It was 600 men there in that garden just to arrest one man. Now, the fact that the actual leaders weren't there reveals how gutless they were by not implicating themselves in this illegal arrest. For these religious leaders, the ends justified the means, even if that meant hurting or killing anyone that got in the way. Now, Jesus, I mean, Judas already had a prearranged sign to let the crowd know who to arrest. That sign would be a kiss. Now, again, in the culture of the first century, a kiss was not always a romantic expression of love. Rather, a kiss on the cheek was a common greeting, a sign of deep respect, honor, and brotherly love. So by choosing to identify Jesus with a kiss, Judas was masking his evil intentions with an intimate expression of love and express and, and love and respect. Verse 45 then tells us, and he came, when, so when he came, he went right up to them, right up to Jesus and said, Rabbi, and then kissed him. Now there are two points to keep in mind as Judas kissed Jesus. The appearance of Jesus was so normal that he needed to be identified. And the second point is, Judas's kiss was a sarcastic display of affection. They became even more crueler when he greeted Jesus with the words, Rabbi. At that, they arrested him, they arrested Jesus, and, uh, and, and they seized him. And notice again that Jesus didn't resist. Things began to go south. Someone grabbed a sword. Later on in John, we're told that it, was, that it was Peter. Chopped the guy's ear off. Took a swing, chopped the guy's ear off. But also, John also mentions that Jesus picked up that ear, put it back on that slave, on that... Uh, it says here that it was a, one of the slaves of, the, of, a, of, one, of the, one of the religious leaders. He puts the ear back on. Now again, the situation could have escalated. It could have gotten worse. But Jesus spoke up and asked why. Why they come with swords as though he was a violent criminal. You see, throughout the week, he had been in the temple teaching. And no one attempted to arrest him. He was there in the public. He was there in broad daylight, in the temple, yet no one attempted to arrest him. And now they're here at night, in the middle of the dark, without the religious leaders there to arrest him. It was, it was absolutely an illegal arrest. There was no, they just grabbed him for no reason. 
But Jesus went along in order again to fulfill scripture. At this point, we're told in verse 50 that all the disciples deserted him and fled. However, in the following verse, it says that a certain young man stayed. But when they tried to seize him too, they grabbed the only thing he was wearing. And then we see that it says he left the linen cloth behind and ran away naked. As he's trying to get away, they grabbed the linen cloth he was wearing and this guy's running down the garden, down the mountain, I was totally butt naked. That was a lot we can go into, there's a lot we can go into with that, but again, I want to stay focused with, with the message here. Now, Bible, who was that man? Bible scholars and historians believe that this, that this young man was the author of this gospel, that it was Mark who, who was that man that, that ran away naked. Now, by not mentioning his own Mark, by not mentioning his own name, Mark was saying yeah, that 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 was me. That was that 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 person that ran away naked was me. I ran away in shame. So so far, again, I, I'm going to try to finish this up quickly. But so far, I shared with you how we ought to spiritually prepare ourselves for trials that lay ahead. Some methods to help alleviate the pain and agony during trials and hardships. So now with the remaining time I have, I want to share with you three ways verses 43 to 52 can show us how to respond when you're in the midst of those trials and hardships. One way you ought to respond is with courage. Not once do we see Jesus cowering in fear when confronted with 600 men and his betrayer. He knew there was nothing they could do to him that would shake his faith his confidence, his assurance that God was in control of this entire situation. If you remember, Paul told Timothy in, in, first, in first Timothy 1 Timothy 1.7, For God gave, us a spirit, God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Jesus also said in John 16.33, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. You will have you will have suffering in this world. Be courageous. I have conquered the world. So when you're confronted by these trials, just be strong, be courageous. Know again that God is in control of this situation. A second way to respond in the middle of trials and hardships is with meekness. Meekness is strength under control, which means that meekness is an attitude, an attitude of the heart. It's an attitude of submission to God. Describing the meekness of Jesus during his arrest, one commentator put it this way. Jesus had massive strength at his disposal, but he restrained his use of power because he knew, he knew that he must die to bring salvation to the weak. He put aside the strength and power of a king and in meekness, not weakness. For the, benefit of the weak, for the benefit of the weak demonstrates the kind of king he is. Not a domineering tyrant, but a meek and gentle king, although supremely powerful. When you respond with meekness, you're completely surrendering your position of power and control over to God. You're saying, yeah, I can do something about this, but I'm not because I trust God to get me through this trial. 
you may have the answers right there in front of you or just you may in your pocket and you're like, I can handle it this way, but other people might get hurt or this might happen, but you know, I, I don't want to feel this way anymore and I don't want to be, I hate this suffering, I hate this hardship. Meekness is just saying, no, Lord, I can do something about it, but I'm not. I'm just going to just, I, I'm going to trust you. A.W. Tozer said this, the meek man will attain a place of soul rest as he walks on in meekness, he will be happy to let God defend him. The old struggle to defend himself is over. He has found the peace which meekness brings. And thirdly, you ought to respond with forbearance. Forbearance is a quality of someone who is patient and is able to deal with a difficult person or situation without becoming angry. With, when confronted with 600 men, Jesus showed great forbearance in his dealings with him. Forbearance is a virtue that we must have in the midst of these trials, in the midst of these hardships. The New Living Translation puts 1 Corinthians 13:7 this way, love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful and endures through every circumstance. It's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. These trials, these storms in your life. I've just told you ways, keys, lessons to get through these storms that Jesus shows us here how to get through these storms. He trusted and relied on God. He believed that God was going to get him through this. He knew it without a shadow of a doubt. It was going to be hard. It was going to be difficult. But he accepted it. He accepted God's will. There may be easy answers for you. You may find a way out. But what you're doing, you're taking away from the lessons that God wants to show you. And some of those lessons are just are so important in your life that if you don't learn them now during that trial, eventually you're going to have to go through them. And, he, you, know, and you have to trust again that He, he loves you. As His child, if, if you're a believer, He's doing it for a reason. So when you're suffering, when you're hurting, come to Him. Come to Him. Cry out to Him. Fall on your face just the way Jesus did and just cry out, Abba, Father, my, my soul is just in anguish. I'm in pain. I'm suffering. Help me. He will hear you. But also, just you, there's people around that love you and that care about you. Reach out to them too. Whoever rejects you, whoever says, you know what, I don't have, to, I don't have time for you. Kind of, it's no friend at all. Come to, you know, come to him, come to others, open up, share what's going on in your life. Let's pray. Lord God, some of us may, may be suffering through 
these emotional trials, hardships. We may see, some of us may see them in the horizon, Lord, those dark clouds gathering in the horizon. Lord, and, and we are, we're, we're, we're scared. Whether we see them or we're going through them, Lord, we, we're scared, Lord. And we ask, Lord, just give us the strength we need to be able to endure them, Lord. Help us to understand that there is a calm in the storm beyond those clouds, Lord. That there is sunshine, that there is glory, that there is victory beyond that, Lord. And whether the storm's coming or whether we're enduring it now, Lord, we want to hold on to you. We want to just embrace you and look at you and, and trust you, have confidence in you, Lord. Give us the strength we need. We don't have the strength in and, in and of ourselves, Lord. If you're watching and listening, you've never accepted Christ. And, in, and you're at a point where you just need him and you understand that and you, you understand that He is the only way. He's, he's speaking to you now, and He's telling you, you know what? I will give you the strength to get through these hardships, through these trials. If you've never accepted and just cry out to God wherever you're at, oh God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for my sins. believe you died on the cross for my sins. I accept your forgiveness, Lord. Help me to change my ways. Help me in my situation. Pour your Holy Spirit upon me so that I may follow you the rest of, my, the, rest of the days of my life, Lord. Thank you for accepting me. Thank you for forgiving me. I love and I praise you, Lord. Once again, Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for allowing us to meet here together. Thank you. We honor you and we praise you and we worship you, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.